a quick note before we get started. I got to be in person again for this one. We recorded it in front of a live audience in Philadelphia at the ISTE Live conference last month. A quick disclaimer, EdSurge is an independent newsroom that shares a parent organization with ISTE. You can learn more about EdSurge's ethics and policies at edsurge.com. Let's go. Here's the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge, and we are coming to you live from the ISTE Live conference in Philadelphia. Um, thanks, everybody, for being here today. All right, there is cheering. Here we go. Today, we are talking about harnessing AI for teaching at really all levels. And we are hearing a ton about this um, all over the place. And we are excited today because we have um, a couple folks here that are real experts on this and not just new to it. I've been working on some of the, the issues underlying what we're seeing now with the AI tech and in thinking through how to make learning more open and accessible and teachers to, to get the tools they need. Um, let me just introduce um, who those guests are. We have Norman Beer. Um, he's the director of Open Learning Initiative at the and executive director of the Simon Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. And Stephen Moore, who's a doctoral candidate at Carnegie Mellon um, in the um, Human Computer Interaction Institute. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I have some, I'm really excited to dive in and ask some questions, um, but we will have time to have audience questions too. So we'll make, uh, take advantage of the fact that we are gathered here. I don't know if people know this, there are a lot of these X prizes um, that are these challenges to researchers to go make something that the world needs. Um, and there are many of them now. <clears throat> I think the X prize has brought us, you know, things about rocketry and driverless cars. Um, lately, there was there was one on digital learning, a digital learning challenge. The two folks we have here from Carnegie Mellon were part of a team to try to win this. And I want to just start by, um, I just think these the stories of these teams are kind of interesting. Um, and, and, you know, th- this, this idea of, obviously, researchers are always trying to solve wicked problems. But he, these, these prizes kind of create this, this kind of timeline and a, you know, million dollar prize and this kind of like trophy that's exciting. So I, I wanted to start, Norm, by asking, like, what made you want to, you know, go for this? And I'm picturing like a Hollywood movie where, you know, you need to assemble your dream team to, to win. And, um, you know, who, who would play you? And no, what is your, when, when you're thinking through this, like who was on the team and what did you, why did you think you had a shot at this? Yeah, the whole thing was very Ocean's Eleven. That was where we uh, got our start. So the uh, Digital X Prize, Digital Learning X Prize, is actually focused on experimentation. Um, as most of you probably know, running experiments in education and really understanding what works is incredibly difficult. Um, you know, we we run smaller studies, we test out some technology, and then we try to scale it. Find out that it's not scaling, and so. Uh, the X Prize, in association with the Department of Education, is interested in building a better infrastructure for experimentation. And so the challenge for us was, can you deliver at scale a set of educational experiments, and then can you replicate those with different learner populations over uh, like a, you know, six experiments over a six-week period? Um, so you know, sort of a challenge. And this is a challenge that was really well aligned with the <coughs> kinds of things that we do at Carnegie Mellon. The Open Learning Initiative is a place that develops online adaptive courseware. We've got thousands of students. We're in hundreds of classrooms and folks using these online materials. We've got a rich tradition of educational data mining. And so, you know, that first question of how can we better bring experimentation into the classroom was one that was pretty interesting to us. Um, Sort of a natural fit with my work, natural fit with Stephen, his advisor, uh, John Stamper, who really leads the world in educational data mining. But we also recognized that we needed some more expertise around different approaches to experimentation. Um, and that brought us in contact with, and really the person that sort of launched this effort, uh, Joseph J. Williams, who is a researcher at the University of Toronto. Joseph's Adaptive Experiment Accelerator Laboratory, um, he and his team have been working for more than a decade and a half 
on not just running A-B experiments, but adaptive experiments. And we can talk a little more about what those mean. Uh, but Joseph is just the, the expert in this space. He's incredibly enthusiastic, and he brings a remarkable lab with some great grad students. And finally, we needed some folks who could help us to dig in and make sure the experiments we were running were both good, but also, um, you know, they are going to tell us something interesting, but also we're, uh, you know, going to be reasonable things to be deploying out in live classrooms with actual students. So Thomas Price down at North Carolina State joined us. He's a computer scientist, but has been spending a lot of time thinking about how do we bring better technology and better experimentation into the CS domain. So that's how we brought this team together, um, working across domains and working across institutions, as you can imagine, comes with its own challenges. Um, but it was also one of the more satisfying parts of the competition. So, and tell me what the name of the product you're creating, sort of, or the, you know, the, the research output you're, you're putting, you're hoping to build then as you get into this? Yeah, so this is the, uh, I think we shortened it to AdX app, so the Adaptive Experiment Accelerator. Um, <coughs> had some internal discussions with the members of the team. If you want to come up with a really snappy marketing term, you should definitely bring together a bunch of learning and computer scientists because we're fantastic at it. Um, <laughs> I sense some, some, yeah, sarcasm, but it's good. Okay. Yeah. And, and so the, uh, just in a really layman's terms, like your, your tool is designed to help um, make rapid testing for learning materials. Correct. Any kind of learning intervention that you'd like to test. Um, and again, most of the time when we think about experiments, we think about A-B studies or we're thinking about um, you know, testing against a control condition. What's interesting about adaptive experimentation, sort of the same kinds of things that you see happening in, um, you know, in Amazon and Facebook, where they're rapidly adjusting conditions and changing what's, uh, what their viewers are seeing to try to better understand quickly what smaller changes are more effective, and then providing more of those changes um, out to the audience. When you think about that in an educational context, it both gives you a chance to test many more conditions, uh, but it also really opens up the opportunity to give more students the kinds of things that are better supporting their learning. If you think about a standard A-B test, we're really working off of averages. Uh, colleague, Yuta uh, Trevor Ennis, uh, also up in Toronto, who talks about this notion of the tyranny of the mean, right? That if we're going to average out everything, we're going to have student populations for whom the intervention that's good for everybody isn't good for them individually. One of the real benefits of adaptive experimentation is that we can start to identify who are these subgroups of students, what are the specific kinds of interventions that are better for them, and then we can deliver them and in real time keep giving them the intervention that's better for them. So there's a real opportunity, we think, to better serve students um, and, and really address the notion of experimentation more equitably. Yeah, it's funny. We, we had Todd Rose on the podcast a while back. He wrote a book, The End of Average, Similar idea of if it's average for everybody, it works for no one in, in some ways. Okay, so Stephen, actually, I understand your part of the team was you were chosen for a specific reason um, regarding learner sourcing. That's correct. So, so talk about that. And, and this is something you got into before there was any chat GPT, it sounds like. What's this idea? Yeah, so the concept of learner sourcing is kind of akin to crowdsourcing, where you'd get you know a large number of people. Think of like um, who wants to be a millionaire when you pull the audience, right? You ask the audience, hey, you know, there's four options here. I don't know which one you know I should pick. You pull the audience. The audience says, oh, go with choice A, right? That's an example of crowdsourcing, right? You use the wisdom of the crowd. All these great minds come together to try to get a solution. So learner sourcing is a take on that, where we actually take all this data from students in courses, right, and, and on these massive online open courses. Courses, um, you know, no matter what grade level, no matter what domain, and we collect their data and get them to actually do something kind of for us that we can then throw back into the course. So one kind of example in particular is getting students that are maybe taking an online chemistry course to create a multiple choice question for us. And so if you have a course with 5,000 students in it and everyone elects to create a multiple choice question, you now have 5,000 new multiple choice questions for that chemistry course. But you might be thinking, you know, how's the quality on that? How's the distraction? Is that what people were thinking? Yeah, it's like, okay, the students are writing the questions. How is the quality on that? And honestly, it can vary a lot. Um, but not to jump ahead too much, but with this whole wave of ChatGPT and all these large language models and natural language processing, we're now able to process these 5,000 questions and improve them and find out which ones are the best that we can actually then take and use in our course instead of just throwing them blindly back into the course. All right, we started... Um, inspired by Ocean's Eleven, and now we're on, um, yes, the, 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 who wants to be a millionaire or whatever, the, the, when we are polling the audience. Um, so, so the learner sourcing was something that now you're thinking, 
um, AI could be part of this. So how much is AI a part of what you're doing? Because A-B testing has been around before things like generative AI. Um, in fact, like sometimes at EdSurge, we'll test a, you know, A-B test a, like a headline of our like a title of a, a newsletter. So that's been going on for a while. What is the AI part, either one of you? So I think it also kind of begins with what your definition of AI is. You know, if you have like a, an if statement, like, you know, go left or go right, do we count that as AI? Um, but in particular for our XPRIZE work, we definitely had a few algorithms that kind of power the back end that say, you know, take they take all the student data and basically run an analysis to say, hey, we should give this intervention to student, you know, Y, we should give this intervention to student X. So AI was definitely a big part of it. Not so much generative AI, but in terms of kind of like selecting what intervention to do for what students, um, the particular term was the multi-arm bandits, which uh, kind of get its its name from slot machines. Uh, so basically using the slot machine algorithm uh, was, a, was a big back end to our, our XPRIZE work. The slot machine algorithm. How, I mean, literally like the, the style of, of, of logic that a casino would use? Yeah, effectively. That's where it gets the name from, the multi-arm bandit, because it's like, you know, bandit's going to take your money. The arm is like you, the arm you pull for the slot machine. And that's kind of the, the basis of the algorithm there. I guess I'm curious, this is one question just kind of um, I've had as I walk around the conference and talk to people about AI. It seems like there are some people I'm talking to where the AI is not new. Even before ChatGPT, people were thinking through using generative AI and, and things similar to, especially in education around things like standardized questions for tests. Like I think ETS you know, was using it for years for like gen helping to generate questions sounds a little bit like what you're talking about. How much has education had some of this AI and it was just under the radar for people? Yeah, it, it's been around since, you know, we had basically computers that you could work, you know, when people would take these standardized tests, you know, even back like 80s, even 70s, you could say it. Um, because again, if you have a computer make a decision on, you know, if, if you go left or if you go right, or hey, you answered this problem, now we should show you this problem. It's been around for long before AI was kind of the hot buzzword and long before generative AI was really a thing. Yeah, I, I, I guess, is anyone surprised by that? I was surprised by that. Maybe I'm the only one. Um, but that to me is, so there is, there's a lot of anxiety around, you know, will AI change the world like in a heartbeat? But has it, I mean, I guess, has it been changing the world maybe slowly in, in certain domains like education? Yeah, I, I would say so for sure. You know, there's definitely some downsides with these standardized tests and whatnot that use these algorithms to select the next problem and all. And there's, you know, issues around equity with that. But it has been changing it, you know, for better or worse. Definitely more toward better, I'd say. So, okay, back to your bid for the XPRIZE. What was the biggest challenge in trying to actually build this tool once you had the team compiled here? I think part of the challenge is in developing an experiment that is useful in multiple contexts and that can play across different domains, right? So we're working with institutions that range from community colleges, four-year institutions, public schools, private schools. And if we want to deploy this in the largest settings possible, we want an experiment that can be useful in a statistics course, also useful in a chemistry course. Drilling down into how do we develop this experiment in ways that's going to ideally tell us something useful, but also provide benefit to the students was really a challenge, you know, something that's going to play in all of those spaces. Um, and I think this was one of the reasons that the learner sourcing approach ended up being really appealing to us, because on the one hand, it's domain agnostic, right? Asking students to participate in the development and improvement of learning materials can happen in any of the domains. Uh, so that could happen in middle school. That could happen in community college, you're saying. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, so it doesn't matter if it's chemistry. It doesn't matter if we're doing, uh, you know, high school statistics, there's, there's an opportunity there. But I think it also gives us multiple points for evaluating how are we supporting the learners. So on the one hand, are we doing things that make them more likely to participate in the course? Are we providing rewards that make them more likely to engage in this learner sourcing activity? Does contributing to the learner sourcing activity actually help them with their broader knowledge in the course, uh, which is the expectation, right? We're asking students not to write these questions because we're looking for free labor, but because we think it's actually going to be helpful for them as they develop their own knowledge. But finally, 
are the kinds of questions and feedback that they're giving us helping us to better improve the course materials in our larger learning model? Um, you know, we've got a sense from lots and lots of research that a novice perspective is actually really important, uh, particularly in these lower level courses. And so pretty implicit in this approach is the idea that we're, we're taking advantage of that novice perspective that students are bringing and that we all lose as we gain expertise. So getting the right experiment was hard. Deploying it uh, and getting it out in front of folks was a second challenge. Uh, I mean this with all respect, but PhDs are the worst at understanding the early learner <laughs> at any Absolutely. domain space. Pile, piles of research on this. A uh, colleague, Ken Kettinger, uh, talks about this as the expert blind spot because that's what the process of expertise is, right? As you become an expert, you're taking all of those weird small tricks that you needed to learn as a, as a novice and pressing them down into your subconscious so that you don't have to think about them. Um, and we forget that stuff really, really quickly. Okay, so um, this is, I, when I talk about these things, it can feel very abstract, but you're talking about actual classrooms, actual learners. Could you just explain, give me a scenario, either real or just like a scenario version of a classroom and how they would use this tool with the students in X class, you know? Sure. So uh, I'm going to start this off, and then I'm going to hand it over to Stephen, put him on the hot seat. Um, very practically, uh, the Open Learning Initiative has a statistics course. So it's an adaptive courseware. Think of it as an interactive high-tech textbook. And so we've got thousands of students at a university in Georgia who are using this stats course instead of a textbook. Students are reading, watching videos, but more importantly, they're jumping in, answering questions, getting targeted feedback. And so into this environment, we're able to introduce these learner sourcing questions, as well as some approaches to try to motivate students to write their own question. Yeah, I have a good example from one of our pilot tests for the project. So we did a little preliminary test, um, and we wanted to see how we could engage students in these optional activities, right? We have all these great activities in this OLI system, and we want students to you know, do extra stat problems and whatnot, but no one really wants to. But we like to keep them optional to give students agency and whatnot. Um, and so we want to say, hey, if we can provide like a motivational message or something like, hey, keep going, like five more problems, and you know, you'll learn more, you'll do better on these exams and tests. You know, how, how can we tailor these motivational messages to get students to participate in these optional activities, whether it be learner sourcing or just answering some multiple choice questions? And for the, this XPRIZE competition and our pilot test, we had a few motivational phrases like that, hey, keep going and whatnot. But uh, one of them involved like a meme because we were like, oh, you know, maybe like some, you know, undergrad students for this particular course will like that. And has anyone heard of the capybara? Can we get a show of hands here? It's like a large kind of like hamster guinea pig thing. And there's just a pic with the, of a capybara at a computer with headphones on and glasses, no text, and we just put that as one of our conditions because it was very last minute. We're like, let's just throw this in and see if it gets students to do it. And for our like five different conditions, the picture of just a capybara with headphones on at a computer led to more students participating in the activities that followed. I guess because you know they saw the the meme, the capybara, and they liked it, and so they're like, I'll do a few more. Maybe it made them chuckle. Like, who knows the exact reason on that? But compared to all these motivational messages, that had the best effect in that particular class. Okay, so capybaras are the key to motivating students to participate in optional um, giving questions to the the teachers for the future. Um, and then once you have those questions that everyone has um, been motivated into giving, then what happens? That's where the hard part comes into play, where you have to do a lot of educational data mining, or now with advances <laughs> and things like ChatGPT, you can effectively kind of throw the questions at these language models like ChatGPT and have them do some preliminary evaluation for you. You can say, hey, you know, can we fix any grammar mistakes that might be there, any formatting mistakes, or, you know, even check if there's at least, you know, three distractors and one correct answer, or see how ChatGPT does at actually answering the question to confirm that it is indeed correct. Because sometimes students will make questions with incorrect answers, especially at a lower grade level. Do you tell ChatGPT to, like, be a second grader and answer this question, say? Effectively, yeah. So, Prompt engineering, folks. Yeah, it's uh, maybe, unfortunately, the future. But um, So, again, in that case where you have 5,000 chemistry questions, you don't want to just show an instructor, hey, here's 5,000 questions, you know, add your favorites to the course. So if we can do a first pass using AI to kind of filter out the quote-unquote bad ones or make improvements to some to get them really to a top-tier level, then maybe we can present 20 or 30 questions to an instructor and say, hey, we think these are really effective. They cover these topics. Would you like to use any in your course in the particular you know, sections that they were created in? Okay, and so that's the, for the individual teacher, like a lot of folks out in the audience here, um, when, what would the benefit be for them in, in, in participating with this tool? Yeah, getting more practice opportunities for their students or especially in more of maybe like an undergrad 
um, scenario where you know material often gets put online if it's for like a quiz or whatever or a study guide uh, maybe you do want to swap the material up that way you know the answers aren't just out there you can have students try or even just making the material more personalized like Norm mentioned with that novice experience you know if the in questions are instructor generated sometimes there is that expert blind spot or sometimes the content of the question maybe isn't connecting with the students as much but when a student makes a question you get a lot of pop culture references you get a lot of the student embodiment kind of into that question so those are some of the best ones because you get all these unique perspectives okay so it's it, it is a t- can people get this tool now or how does that work or where is where is it in the in the development it kind of lives in any online courseware you might might be using so we want to put it back into you know canvas moodle desire to learn all these lmss that you might be using as well as other kind of edtech systems like the open learning initiative i mean it, could people use that stats course you mentioned now with this in it or is it still in development no, we've, uh, we've got the stats course out there, and it has been connected. It's got these learner sourcer questions. So, and, I, and I think this actually plays nicely with you know, the idea that we've been using AI in education in lots of ways. What's been remarkable about the past six to eight months is suddenly the ability to access and use this has been – the, the barriers have really dropped down, right? I mean, that's why people are so excited about ChatGPT and about uh, some of the generative AI art projects is that it's stopped being a tool that requires uh, a PhD student in human-computer interaction and instead becomes a tool that anyone can use. And the idea behind bringing these adaptive experimental infrastructures out into the world is to also offer those options up to any educator so that it stops being just something that's happening in a small lab, but instead you can take any classroom and start to treat your own instructional practice as a scientific approach and run your own experiments. So easiest way, you could head to OLI, uh, oli.cmu.edu, and check out the courses that are there. The infrastructure has been plugged in. But um, if you Google Adaptive Experiment Accelerator, uh, you will also be able to get access to this source code. Um, you download it, try connecting it yourself to some of your own educational technologies, and uh, run your own experiments. We're also always looking for partners in this work. And so if you've got a great idea but aren't quite motivated or aren't quite at the level of wanting to download this stuff and install it, reach out. Uh, we've got a team of scientists and students who would love to work with you. Okay, so now the X Prize. I'm picturing there's a big like award ceremony where they announce the winner. Is that true, or is that just as an online? You get an email. What, what is it? How does it end this thing? So you don't get an email. So it was, uh, the the competition runs in phases, um, and and you've got various milestones that you need to meet before you make it to the finals. They had originally expected to have five teams make it to the finals, and it turned out, and this we did get an email. There were three teams that made it to the finals. Um, our work with the uh, the Adaptive Accelerator. There's a team from a company called Carnegie Learning. Uh, the the uh, adaptive mathematics company who has been running a tool um, for a b testing called upgrade and there's a tool called terracotta uh, which provides experimental capabilities for canvas so these were the three teams we became finalists uh, from our pilot study and at that point we're set loose to meet that larger challenge of can you run an experiment replicate it with different learner populations over a six-week period uh, five times. So you, you know, what you start to see there is we're hitting on a couple of different points. Is the infrastructure robust? Is our experimental design robust? But also, are we able to address some of those basic challenges of replicability in science, um, which is not just a problem in the learning sciences, problem everywhere. Uh, at the end of that contest, we had a massive report that we needed to write, which involved uh, a 48-hour no-sleep writing binge on a shared Google Doc. Um, you know, the glamorous is, life. This is always where we do our best work, right? Uh, 16th cup of coffee. Um, we sent our report in, and uh, from there, a panel of experts that included folks from uh, IES, included folks from the XPRIZE committee, reviewed that work. Um, and then there were some phone calls to, uh, to the various teams that were participating. Um, so there was a big award ceremony, but um, there was, there was not a, it was not a surprise by the time we got to the award ceremony. All right, and if you're picking up on this uh, drum roll, they won. We they did. won the prize. So it's a million dollars, but I hear they had to split it and share it. So it's not like winning the lottery ticket, I guess. Uh, it's a million dollar purse. It's not a million dollar prize. Um, and 
the so you know there there was a prize for making it to the finals, which is split across the teams that did make it, um, and then the grand prize ends up uh, you know being one chunk of funds with some additional funds going to the second and third place teams. You know, in some ways, we're we're still a little shocked that uh, we won, uh, but but excited and really excited, mostly at the opportunity to take the work and take the technology, um, and get it further out into the world. See if we can get more folks using adaptive experimentation in their own practice. Okay, I want to talk about. Uh, I'm really excited that we got to share that story. Thank you both for that. I also just want to broaden it out a little bit to some of the issues that are really. Um, all in the air, you know, we've talked a little bit about ChatGPT and the interest that sparked in generative AI. What, I guess, one of the things that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of, I feel like there's this mix of excitement I'm seeing here by some folks in, edu- in education and also concern. And it's not one of those stories. Sometimes in, in covering tech for as long as I have in education, I feel like sometimes there's been this situation where like, oh, you find one group of people that are really excited and they're in this camp over here. And there's another group of people that are really concerned and you go talk to them. But it's the same people that are both in this, in this exam, at least for what I'm talking to, to people about. It seems like people are like, yes, I'm very excited. Yes, I'm very concerned um, about, you know, you know, a lot of things when it comes to generative AI and chat GPT. Um, you know, basically a mix of, can this help me as an educator do my job better, um, as we've been talking about, or will students also do this and will it be hard to tell what's their human work and what's created by a bot? And so I guess what, how would you, um, as pe- as two people who have been thinking about this longer than the rest of us in the room, um, at least I'll speak for myself there, um, then what, what do you think is, how do you kind of see this moment and, you know, where are you in this, you know, um, worried or excited um, about kind of the chat GPT consumer, like the, the, the big tools that are out there now for the world. Okay. Steven's going to start us off. Yeah, I, I definitely play both sides there where there's a lot of cool advancements going on, but you should definitely be super hesitant. I would say, you always need human eyes on whatever the output from whatever generative AI you're using. Like, never just blindly trust what is being given out to you, even for basic domains. Like, always put some human eyes on it. So that's the first thing. Keep the human in the loop. Uh, I'd also like to throw out that plagiarism detectors for ChatGPT are terrible right now. There's like, do not use those, please. They're they're not fair. They're not great. Uh, there's like six popular ones. I will not name drop them, but do not use them uh, to to you know see if your students are writing using ChatGPT. But I guess we had a past episode where we dug into this and talked to some of the people making those and asked them how sure they are about it. And one of them said that we think um, in in a year or if, like a pretty short term, we won't even be able to claim we can do this at all. Like it's it's like it's it's advancing so fast. Yeah. Okay. That's good. I was n- nervous for a second there. Um, but yeah, keeping the human uh, in the loop, right, for sure, super important. And I think the access, kind of as Norm alluded to earlier, uh, for students to you know improve the writing, to get you know maybe some tailored feedback, to have just a more conversational form of Google, for instance, uh, in ChatGPT. I think it, it can pay dividends for students, right? I think that access side is definitely one of the positive points. But the downside is the student can start blindly trusting it, you know, maybe get some misinformation, uh, and that kind of perpetuates, uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, Norm, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think the uh, you know this notion of the human in the loop is really a hallmark of the work we do at CMU, and we've been thinking strategically about how do we keep that human in the loop, and that's a little bit at odds with the some of the current hype, right? Um, we've got folks who are just rushing out to say what we really need is to build a, a a magic tutor that can provide direct access to all of our students that can ask it questions. There are a lot of problems with that. Some of that being that you know we're all familiar with the technology's tendency to hallucinate. That gets compounded by the fact that lots and lots of learning research tell us we like things that confirm our misconceptions, right? Our students are the least likely to challenge this bot if it's telling them things that they already believe. And so what we've been trying to think about are not what are, this, what, what are these first order things that we can use? What are the big obvious candidates that are generating all the hype right now? But rather, what are the deeper applications of this? And what are ways that we can use those applications while keeping a human being in the loop? And there's a lot of stuff that we can be doing. There are aspects of developing content for things like adaptive systems that human beings, while they're very good at, hate doing. As, as someone that builds courseware, my faculty authors hate writing questions with good feedback. Just, just not a thing that they want to spend their time doing. 
So providing ways that these tools can start to, um, you know, to, to give early hints to them, to start giving them first drafts that are still being reviewed is something we're excited about. We also have spent a lot of time at Carnegie Mellon building out uh, learning dashboards, learning analytics. So what we want to do is try to provide to educators a glimpse of what their students are doing and, and make this actionable, right? Like, you know, here, here are where your students are struggling. Here's where they're being successful. It turns out that most of us are really terrible interpreting data and taking action from it, just no matter how good the display is. And it doesn't matter what the domain is. My stats faculty struggle with this just as much as anyone else. This becomes an opportunity to grab something like a, a generative AI chatbot, which will have access to the data, but which we can also prompt with things like evidence-based practices and inclusive teaching practices and get it to provide some suggestions to educators of what might you be trying, what are some things that you can take from this data and really do in your classroom. This has the benefit of being able to nudge practice in different ways, but more importantly, we also have a faculty member or a teacher who is sitting in between this chatbot and the students and can say, you know what, that thing you've just suggested, like, that's a terrible idea. Bad bot. Punish it. And, uh, you know, let's get this thing out of circulation. Is that, so is that, you've mentioned this, it, both of you mentioned the importance of having a human in the loop and having, you know, don't just take, I think of, I think we've all experienced the autocorrect on typing a text where you're like, oh, if I sent that, that would be bad. Um, essentially, you're saying that could happen at any time with, with these chat GPT returns or generated responses it sounds like so are there other are there other um kind of scenarios you you see that that are of concern to you there is this one that i'm curious about is you know could this technology when it gets good replace the teacher in some way or be used by a school or college to sort of you know cut cut human labor i know that the intent is to make it a helper uh, to the humans. But do you worry about the potential of it replacing teachers in some way? So I, I think this is a natural worry, right? This isn't new. This is a thing that we've been worried about with technology uh, going going back to Jacquard's loom um, and had some uh, fairly violent reactions when those kinds of uh, displacements start happening in the workforce. But I think the idea that we're going to be replacing teachers with this stuff is premature at best. Um, I, I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues at ASU about this. I said, oh, well, let's, you know, is there an opportunity to build a chatbot that can serve as a tutor? Um, and my question to him was, do you believe that this chatbot is going to be as good of an educator as you are? Can it teach chemistry as effectively as you do? Because if it can't, then what you're suggesting is that we're, you know, going to deploy second tier teaching to some of our most vulnerable learners. But if it can do it, if this is able to teach chemistry as well as a tenured chemistry professor, then why are we teaching chemistry at all? It's like using a cell phone to teach people how to, uh, you know, use the slide roll. Uh, and so I think the capabilities of these systems are going to evolve and change what people need to learn. And as those capabilities evolve, our, our ability and our need to teach things as educators is going to keep on changing. But I don't see it uh, displacing us. And when it starts to displace educators, we need to be very, very careful and thoughtful about the kind of experience, uh, if it's displacing teachers, I should say, the kind of experience that it's providing, and who are the students that are getting this new kind of uh, chat-based experience. That's really interesting. And so, in other words, um, the, the question you're really asking is, if it's being deployed, is it, is it really good enough to do the thing that it's being assigned to go do? Um, in our to our standards of uh, uh, that we are used to in education, correct. Is it is it good enough? And if it is good enough, you know, are are we changing what the foundational needs of of learning are? Right. You know, do I need to learn this thing if I now have a technology that can do it as well or better uh, than than a human can, or should I be learning something different? Stephen, do you want to add anything to this um, at this point? No, I, I, th I think what Norm said is spot on. I think uh, you always need to question. There originally was some hype, right? Like, oh, we're going to replace teachers. And it's like, you know, maybe it'll replace an instructional video because maybe a one-on-one -on -one interaction with this kind of like AI chatbot is maybe better than just passively sitting there and watching a video. But, you know, replacing an in-person uh, teacher in the classroom, I, I think we're a bit far from that. I'm going to open up to questions in a second after I ask this next one. Um, I, this goes to, there's another project I understand you're working on, um, that is about equity in courseware. And does that, um, 
does that involve AI? And can you speak a little bit about that? Because it seems to segue from what we were just were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So a project I'm really excited about. Uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have been long-term investors in courseware, uh, particularly in post-secondary education, and have really believed in this idea that adaptive courseware, when, when developed well, um, can, can really change outcomes, particularly for some of our most vulnerable learners. Uh, they've just made a fresh investment in this space, what they're calling equity-centered exemplar courseware. So how can we build courseware that really shows the best of what's capable, uh, given the technology and given the best of learning design? And can we build these materials in ways that really improve outcomes for Black, Latinx, Indigenous students, students experiencing poverty? Um, and so our project is around chemistry. We're building a Gen Chem 1, Gen Chem 2 courseware, where our emphasis is on contextualization. Um, I think that one of the real deep down reasons that students struggle with Gen Chem is that it doesn't connect well with their lived experience. They don't see the relevance to their own life. And so we're asking, how can we build the kind of learning experience Experience that supports the core knowledge that they need, but allows them to make these connections in more immersive scenarios to things that are important to them. Um, we and the foundation are really interested in some of the ways that we can deploy generative AI in support of these courseware. And so we've got a couple of projects that we're piloting right now and that uh, we hope to have some pilot demos around. One of them being the uh, learning dashboard that uh, I was just describing. How can we bring in a chatbot that might help act as a fantastic teaching assistant and help educators both interpret the data that are coming from their students' use of materials, but also encourage them to use the kind of practices that we know are going to be most effective. We've got another project that is taking a look at that Socratic tutoring space. Um, you know, can we start to trust this thing inside a, a space where it can advise students? And then we've got lots and lots of projects around developing and refining the materials uh, that, that are going to play out. And so what you start to see there is a strategy that asks, how can we use generative AI to support learners? How do we use it to support educators? And how do we use it to support authors and instructional designers? All right. So um, I'm sure folks out there are, have some thoughts and questions here. Is there anyone that would like to ask a question to our panel? Oh, great. I'm going to walk out. So uh, my name is Tim. I'm a founder of a, a Active Learning Labs company. Um, we talk about that AI is going to change the skills that people need in the future. And if you look at current education, it's kind of become a specialist in this kind of stovepipe world. <laughs> What do you see happening in the future in terms of what is going to replace the way we educate now? Thanks. Yeah, I think that's definitely something that we're going to have to see evolve. Uh, you know, I think it's like, I, I remember back in my day, um, you know, it's like you'll never have a calculator in your pocket, so you need to learn to do this math. And now it's like, well, I do, and, you know, I can just Google everything. So... I think you still need foundational skills, but for instance, computer programming, I think, is becoming more and more accessible from these tools like ChatGPT, where you still need to know some basics, you need to know what like a variable is, and maybe some of the logic, but if you need to actually write the syntax or, you know, how to, you know, do something kind of basic, even intermediate, this these tools can help you with it, and I think that's true for other domains as well. You know, if you have some baseline chemistry knowledge, uh, you know, you could ask a question, kind of formulate it, give it a few keywords, and then you can get a response, or at least be guided toward where you can get a correct answer for something. I think um, we've got a colleague, a couple of colleagues in the English department at CMU, uh, Dave Koffer and uh, Suguru Ishizaki, who are really interested in applications of this in the writing space. And Suguru talks a lot about the distinction that he's drawing between learning to write and writing to learn. And from his perspective, the way that these tools are advancing, we're very quickly going to need to just almost completely abandon the ways that we teach students how to write, that the tools are so good that if, you know, if you're able to give it some core amount of thoughts or points, then the tool's going to really be able to put that into a reasonable construction for you. But in flipping that and thinking about how the act of writing supports our own learning, suddenly the ability to use these tools to help students in reflection, to help interrogate their own work, and to help interrogate their own writing becomes something really important, and it really does become an aid in that larger learning process. And so I suspect that some part of what the future of learning looks like is starting to learn how to use these tools, not just, you know, in your day-to-day -day educational practice, but thinking about how these are going to impact your professional life, how they're going to change what you're doing in the job force. And so I think that piece of our curriculum is going to need to change and evolve. Really interesting to bring in that. that I've heard a lot these days of like, well, the students are going to enter a world in which 
these these AI tools are going to be in use. So that's another thing to think about as educators go into it. Um, any other questions out there? Great. Hi, uh, my name is Dave. I work for Khan Academy. Um, I am curious, like we have a thing going on and uh, what other, like we're acutely aware of everything you just, just talked about. You're, you know, what is going to happen to writing instruction? Where does this go? And it's totally unknown. Uh, and I'm just curious about like whether you have any insights about like you know where you think it's going to go like if we if the students need to learn writing anymore and if not is it the is it the constructive you know dialogic conversational is that how we're going to wind up assessing writing in the future through conversation that's AI assessed like what are your thoughts on that It's a big question do we need to teach writing and if so I guess the bigger question it seems like is more like if, if yes, how? So uh, all my cards on the table, I come from a humanities background. My, my original degrees are in English literature and philosophy, and I can't imagine a world in which we're abandoning writing strictly for, for a conversational approach. But these could be my own biases, right? Um, but I think that the ways that we're going to teach writing, and again, I'm, you know, borrowing from colleagues here, really are going to need to emphasize the ways that that act of writing and that act of creation help us in building our own knowledge. Um, I think that the simple act of, of writing to capture information and to convey information really is you know, the way that we're going to be changing that is going to be, that's going to become completely different. Um, and I think that how we structure these tools to engage with the creation as knowledge development process, whether that's writing, whether that's art, whether it's anything else, um, is, is going to be one of the big challenges, right? I mean, you mentioned you're struggling with it. I think that we're all struggling to figure out what are the right pieces that we need to put in place. Um, I think that uh, part of what this will require, not to bring this full circle, but part of what this is going to require is a real commitment to a scientific approach, to ongoing experimentation, and to really beginning to think about our classrooms, not just as places where we're instructing, um, but you know, as, as lab spaces where we're going to be trying different approaches with the technology, with our own kinds of interventions, and trying to share out that information to better understand how can we can use these tools effectively and, uh, you know, where, where they're just not getting the job done. It's, yeah, it seems like there's a way in which um, you, I know, have been talking about learning engineering for years, even before these, these latest AI trends. And it seems like perhaps you're, you're seeing this as an opportunity to get some of the ideas of making the teaching, uh, experimenting on teaching, being mainstream, that when these platforms, if and when these come in with AI tools, that could be a chance to actually have that happen in, in classrooms in a, in a tangible way? I think, yeah, there's some nice parallels, right? You know, so we're noting that on the one hand, one of the reasons, these trends that we're seeing in generative AI have been long-term trends, but the current excitement around them is happening for a lot of reasons, uh, one of them being the cycles of venture capital, but uh, one of them also, I think, being that ease of access, that we've really lowered barriers, and so it's become a thing that anyone can engage with. Um, and the parallel for us is that we've really been making deep investments in opening up this learning engineering space so that it stops becoming something really specialized and so that instead we really can start to build a community-based research activity where every educator that's interested can start to do their own experiments. Um, there's a, uh, a common response to that idea. You know, a lot of teachers get nervous and say, well, what are you... You're suggesting I should be experimenting on my students? That's, that sounds really uncomfortable, right? Um, but in practice, every time we walk into a classroom, we're taking on an experiment. We're, we're you know, engaging in an experiment that this set of activities I'm having my students work through uh, is, is going to result in a change of knowledge state. It's just that it's not always a very robust experiment, and it's not always one that you're, uh, that you're evaluating, capturing data from, and, and reflecting on. And so giving you better tools to make that experiment and your hypothesis both explicit and robust, uh, lowering those barriers, hopefully opens more doors and uh, also gives us a place to start to integrate some of the new Gen AI capabilities um, in ways that should become increasingly effective rather than just uh, increasingly terrifying. Let's hope for not increasingly terrifying. That seems like a good goal. Um, any other questions out there here? My name's Bob. So I work with... Um districts around the country in rural spaces. 
So when you talk about learner sourcing and you're talking about thousands of questions to get a few good ones, um, a lot of the districts I work with don't have thousands of students. So looking at a region of the state uh, of any state where that culture is kind of similar, what is kind of the sample size on that learner sourcing that you really start seeing enough good questions coming out of it so that the teachers can then use that? Okay, okay. Yeah, no, that's a really great question. Um, so I've done this with courses as small as like seven students to average course size maybe of 30 students. Um, and just most recently, literally last night, I was working with like a course that has about 32 students. It's a chemistry course. Um, and just for one set of, hey, make a multiple choice question. So I had 32 responses. And roughly 10 of those uh, were good as is, like no edits. You could use them. That was at an undergraduate level though. Um, so yeah, you, you know, even if you have a few students, typically those can rise to the top. Some will rise to the top. And there are also ways you can kind of help students make better questions, but there always is like that time trade-off. Like, do we really want to train this eighth grader on how to write a good multiple choice question, or do we just want them to learn? We just want them to learn. Um, so that might have a little difference there. But, you know, once they get in the practice of it, um, you know, even as few as 10 students could, couldn't generate a few good questions. And of course, that activity still does benefit their learning. And there is a lot of research on that. There was another question um, back here. Hi, I'm Rachel, and I'm looking at this from the lens of special education. So in terms of harnessing AI, are there any avenues that special educators might want to look at more closely instead of trying to look at all of it and like pull pieces from it? Or do you know of any organizations that are specializing in the use of AI in special education? So I'm not familiar with any particular companies, but I think the, the AI space there for special education could really help providing some like kind of like context and different examples for activities you might provide students to really fit their interest. And I think that to me is like the one part of ChatGPT where it's pretty solid now is if you give it some question or some sentence or something and you change the context. Hey, you know, this question's about baseball, change it to be about basketball, about racing, about, you know, fashion or something. Uh, so I think that context switch can really help and appeal to students uh, of all different backgrounds. So I think that's one kind of strength, but that's all I'm really drawing on right now. Yeah, I think that that notion of leveraging prompt, start to get into buzzwords, but prompt engineering. So I, I don't have any expertise in, in special education, just to you know, it'd be really upfront. But as, as someone with expertise, I assume you've got an entire set of approaches and theories and a grab bag of tricks that you're using in the classroom starting to apply those into the prompts that you use so that you're able to use this tool to, again, guide the practice in ways that you know can be effective. That includes context shifts. That includes the opportunity for personas. Um, I, I think are the directions I'd start looking. But like Stephen, I don't know of any organizations that have really dumped head, jumped head first into this space. Okay, we are nearly at time, but I realize there's something I meant to do earlier that I'd love to just do now because it's not over yet here, um, which is, so out there are, how, like, I'm going to ask two questions and you can do both of them if you want to. Who out there in the audience, and we can't do hands because we won't see them on the podcast, by cheers or something, um, how, how many of you are excited about the possibilities of AI in the classroom? Okay, and how many are nervous and a little worried about AI coming into the classroom? I don't have a sound meeting meter, but it's it's a little, maybe like the tone was a little different. Woo and woo, like it's. Uh, but that's probably just the the kind of answer. But yeah, so I think it is it is confirming that idea that um, we all in various ways feel both. Uh, uh, this is really different and and could be great, or this is really different and could be an existential crisis. Um, existential crises are not the easiest, I guess. Uh, you know, how long have you been in ed tech? I feel like we're just a never-ending series of hype cycles and existential crises, right? Oh, this is the this is a good one though. But is this one so? I'm, I'm hearing experts say, like, but this is different. This is like the printing press, and that last one was just, you know, um, an upgrade to the car. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's what they told me about the last one. Blockchain was going to change everything in education, right? Um, what about you, Stephen? Do you think, I mean, is this, is, is there something different about this moment with AI coming so quickly, it, it, these generative models? 
I think the access here is what sets it apart from some of the other kind of hype cycles. But yeah, I'm too jaded by the blockchain hype where everything was going to be on the blockchain is going to change things. And like, look at us now and like Bitcoin's in the, you know, the gutter. So yeah, I'm just, I don't know. I, I think it does change it a little bit just by the access and by improving writing and stuff in certain domains. But I still think there's way too much hype around it. All right. Well, uh, we, we're about at time. I guess the um, I, I guess I wanted to just leave. Uh, do you have either one of you some any final words, either a quick story that shows, you know, what you want to leave people with from the work you've done or just a, a thought um, to, to sort of uh, finish us off here? I think um, I would say embrace ChatGPT and kind of embrace the generative AI wave. I know a lot of people and some even school districts and countries are kind of like banning it in their schools. But like it was mentioned, students are going to be in the job force and have these tools, especially if it's your middle school or elementary school or even high school, right? Five years from now, this technology is admittedly going to be much more advanced. Um, and who knows where where it'll be? But ultimately, students will be using this in undergraduate, you know, and in their careers and whatnot. So you should embrace it. You should kind of allow for it, or at least teach them how to use it when it's appropriate to use it. Um, in cases, I would say don't don't ultimately reject it, but don't fear like uh, it'll replace you because I think we are still way way beyond that. Yeah, I think uh, Stephen had an interesting using that five year time horizon. Uh, you know. I think I've heard this attributed to Bill Gates that we underestimate, uh, excuse me, we overestimate the impact of technology and change over a short three-year period, but we underestimate the amount that it can change over 10. And so the current fury over what's happening with ChatGPT and are we going to rush to build you know, better tutors underplays what's going to be happening over that longer 10-year plan. And so I, I think in some ways thinking about what are the second and third order impacts, what are the ways that we can start to connect these tools with one another um, is, is really where the most interesting work is going to happen. And so I would say start thinking a little more long-term about how these tools can play with each other and what are the places where they really can bring more efficiency into your students' learning or into your own instructional practice. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for being here. And thank our guests for their insights. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. To make sure you don't miss any of those great episodes, please follow us on whatever podcast app that you're using and sign up to the Ed Surge Podcast newsletter. That's at edsurge.com. Click on the word newsletter. While you're there, you can sign up for our other newsletters, if you're not already, to get the latest reporting and insights from our newsroom. This week's episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on the web at jeffyoung.net. Editing help this week by Rebecca Koenig. Music by Rowan Jane. We're going to be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.